Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Once again, Hebrews chapter 10, reading verses 11 through 18. God's word. Hebrews 11, or Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. As for the the reading of our Lord's word, may bless it to us. So there's a job that most of us hold at some point in our life. It's a good summer job, and it's a decent way to work your way through college, which is to be a waiter or a waitress. Now, few turn this into a career, but most have it only for a season. For waiting tables is not that easy. It requires carrying cold drinks and hot soup that you can spill and heavy trays of dirty dishes. Waitresses put up with picky eaters, rude kids, and pathetic tips. But particularly, being a waiter is arduous because you're always on your feet, hustling and bustling. You're constantly on the move. You don't get to sit down, and it isn't long before your feet are killing you. Now, there are plenty of other jobs that keep you on your feet all day, but this type of work well contrasts with quitting time. After hoofing it for hours, you finally get to go home and kick up your feet. You shed your shoes and you just plop on the couch. It feels so good to relax after a hard day's work. To just sit after so much standing. Well, Hebrews uses these contrasting postures, sitting versus standing, to drive home for us why sacrifice has ended for good. In fact, sacrifice has been the main topic these past few chapters. In chapters 6 and 7, the priesthood of Jesus was showcased for for us, him being of the higher and eternal order of Melchizedek. Then in chapter 8, the shadowy earthly tabernacle was contrasted with the reality of the heavenly temple. Then, since chapter 9, the role and function of sacrifice has been the main dish on the table. And with these verses before us, this section on sacrifice is being drawn to a close, which makes this passage the summary and capstone of his argument at this point. Hebrews has been baking us a theologically layered cake on the priestly work of Christ. But now he ices it and makes it pretty. And every good color scheme for decoration has contrast. 
Thus, he spreads for us the base layer of the Old Testament. Every priest stands daily at his service. The priest under the law stood to minister to the Lord and for the people. And the language here is classic Old Testament idiom for the Aaronic priest. That is, the Lord chose the priest to stand before him and minister in the tabernacle. We read this line in Deuteronomy 18, and this description for the priest is found from Exodus all the way through Ezekiel in the Old Testament. This cliche, though, of standing to minister is not stale, but vibrant with meaning. For one, to stand before the Lord was the honored office and position to be God's high servant. Servants stand before their lords, ready to heed the beck and call of the master. To stand before God was like being one of his cabinet members. It was special and privileged. Yet secondly, this idiom had more of a literal sense, meaning the priest actually stood for their job. There was no task that they got to sit down. The priest stood to sacrifice and sprinkle blood. They were on their feet to burn incense, light the menorah, and change the showbread. They pronounced the benediction. They prayed. They purified, all standing up. Likewise, the priest in the Old Testament had to minister barefoot. They could not wear comfy footwear like Crocs or Dansko, but they hoofed it barefoot in all their work. And and to make it more intense, they did this every day. They were ministering on their bare feet as a constant job. Every day they offered regular burnt offerings, smoked the incense, and trimmed the wicks of the menorah. These chores were doubled on the Sabbath. Then, every time your average Hebrew brought an offering, the priest had to preside. The holy festivals called for sacrifices by the dozens. Thus, day in and day out, around the clock, priests labored on their feet. This presents the constant, tedious labor of the serving priests standing up with no Sabbath break. Now, sure, individual priests got time off, but as an office, the priest never enjoyed a day off or got a Sabbath rest. Like the flame that was on the altar that forever burned, so the priests were always on duty. This makes your feet ache and your back hurt just thinking about it. The priest never got to sit down put up their feet, or feel the sweet embrace of the couch. But they stood up and they ministered every day, all day long. And yet, for all this wearisome productivity, the priest didn't accomplish what really mattered. Now, sure, the priesthood maintained the Old Testament covenant life for the people, which was light in a dark world. But all these sacrifices repeated endlessly did not gain what was truly precious. As it says, they could never take away sins. Now, the sacrifices of the Old Testament did have other functions and purposes than just sin. But sin was kind of task number one. 
Sin is the major problem that separates us from God, and it must be removed for us to live peacefully with the Lord. And yet the river of animal blood was incapable of remedying our sin problem. Moreover, to take away sin here is a holistic activity. It means to purge sin from the sanctuary, to purify us from guilt, and to destroy sin outside the camp. The constant sacrifices of the standing priest, though, never succeeded in fulfilling its most important task. Such futility makes Sisyphus's boulder-rolling seem like a walk in the park. On your feet all day, every day, slaughtering animals and performing rituals, but never finishing the job. The priests were barefoot on a treadmill, so many steps, but no forward movement. Though with this base color laid down, now Hebrew adds contrast. But he, every priest sacrificed repeatedly, but he offered one sacrifice for sin. The many is set over against the one. The many priests contrast the one Christ. The countless sacrifice juxtapose a single sacrifice, and a variety of offerings are compared to one type, the sin offering. To offer thousands of sacrifices takes weeks, months, years. Between the tabernacle and the temple, animal sacrifice lasted for over a thousand years. And yet to offer up one sacrifice? This takes a short time, a mere three hours between noon and three. Thus, as priest, Jesus only had to make one offering. He didn't get practice, no test runs. He didn't get reduced to hone his technique. Rather, he got one chance, a single shot to get it right. And how did he do? Well, how good are you on your first try? The first time you swing a bat, drive a car, make a dish, or plant a garden is typically not very impressive. Even with beginner's luck, our first attempts leave us or leave a lot to be desired. We require training, practice, and repetition to hit the bullseye. Jesus, though, was like us, but better than us. After he made one offering for sin, heaven gave its grade, and it published, he sat down for all time at the right hand of God. And what a grade this is, for this line is bursting at the seams. First, to do a job and then to sit down means you finish the task. It spells no more to be done. Second, to sit at God's right hand is to be accepted, approbated, and praised. This validates Christ's offering as perfect, grade A, 100%. On his first try, Jesus aced it. Third, the chair at God's right hand is the seat for the glorified, glorified priest-king. Now, as you know, servants stand... But lords get to sit down. Christ sitting proclaims him as Lord 
after he died like a slave upon a tree. Moreover, this language comes from Psalm 110, and it more fittingly applies to the king. Now, sure, Christ is still priest in heaven as he continues to pray for us. But in terms of his atoning death, his priestly work is finished so that now he can sit as king. Finally, this sitting conforms to the posture of rest, to enter one's Sabbath rest as reward and blessing for for good service. Indeed, at the right hand, Jesus has won his eternal rest and glory. Therefore, by these two different positions, a most wonderful truth is handed to us. On one hand, there are the priests standing as servants, always on the job, work never done, and laboring fruitlessly. On the other hand, the glorified Lord is reclining at rest for a job perfectly completed. The superiority of our Savior is unmatched, it is beautiful, and the source of all our comfort and life. And yet now that Jesus took a load off as priest, he waits as our king. With with a crown next to God, Christ patiently tarries until all his enemies are put under his feet. Now again, this language comes from Psalm 110, and it rightly posits that this subduing of hostiles is more properly the work of the Father. As it says there, Yahweh said to the Messianic Lord, I will put your foes under your feet. So finished and glorious is the work of Christ that he can sit down and the Father honors him by, by vanishing, by conquering all his enemies for him. Now, sure, in other passages of Scripture, Jesus is presented as also being active in this subduing as well. But here, the author uh, underscores how the Father crushes the foes under the Son's feet to amplify the fulfilled and ideal work of Christ. And yet this frame, this frames the work of Christ with two bookends. One, he sacrificed himself to take a seat. And two, the Father will conquer all foes at the end so that the Son will reign with no opposition. And these two bookends link back to nine, chapter 9, verse 27, where there Jesus, it said, first came to atone for sin, and he's coming a second time, for salvation for those who wait upon him. The second coming salvation of believers now, then, is paired with this total vanquishing of foes by the Father. And this adds a sober element of caution and assurance. For those who trust in Christ alone, you are ensured that the future holds for you salvation and blessing. But for those who hate, who oppose the true God and his anointed one, terrifying defeat lies ahead. Yes, there are enemies of Christ, and for them, there is no salvation, but only wrath. 
Jesus is coming again in glory, and for those who rejected and slandered him in this life, so Christ will judge them for eternity. The Father will smash the haters of his beloved Son. And yet you, you who are in Christ by faith, this end is not yours. To trust alone in Jesus secures for you a glorious future, all of grace, one of salvation. For, as it says next, for by his one sacrifice he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, this mention of sanctification does not refer to our personal growth in uh, godliness, um, which theologians rightfully call our doctrine of sanctification. Rather, this term means Christ's consecration of us to be holy through his labors upon the cross. It would be better rendered here as the sanctified, as this expresses our present status as those holy unto the Lord. Such holiness comes by the blood of Christ, and it incorporates our, our being God's special possession, having access to the Father, and our covenant relationship with him. Additionally, those sanctified by Jesus, it says he also perfected for all time. Now, as we've seen before, this work of perfecting includes Christ washing our sin off of that heavenly temple, him purifying our dead conscience, and him actualizing for us total forgiveness. To be both sanctified then and perfected means you are not an enemy and you will not be forced under the feet of wrath and judgment. Thus, in the present, there are two, option, two options before us. Do you believe in Christ's death to be perfected and made holy? Or do you stiff-arm Jesus to be subdued as an enemy in the end? Well, may we all believe in Christ. Let us never swerve from that perfecting and sanctifying work of Jesus for us. And to encourage us that such perfect atonement is ours by grace, the author now again quotes from the Old Testament. And this citation is a repetition as he cited this passage from Jeremiah 31 for us back in chapter 8. So the way he introduces this quote is not insignificant. Note he says, the Holy Spirit testifies to us from Jeremiah. This is our doctrine of inspiration busy at pastoral ministry. That is, even though Jeremiah penned these words over 2,500 years ago, the Spirit testifies by them. Thus, the Spirit is the ultimate author of them. The hand and the mind of Jeremiah put these words on paper, but the Spirit was the creator and wordsmith guiding the prophet flawlessly. Also, despite this passage being an antique of history, the Spirit testifies by these words in the present. The Spirit makes this passage ever relevant and fresh, always applicatory for us. 
as you know, our current culture is desperately biased against the past. Dead men have nothing to teach us modern people. And yet nothing could be more wrong-headed. The dead Jeremiah holds the wisdom that the doctor prescribed. Besides, even though Jeremiah is dead, his words are alive and well by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, the Spirit speaking through the prophet is testimony. And testimony is legally registered truth. Bearing witness is truth that stands up in court. To ignore the testimony then deserves penalties under the law. But to heed testimony comes with the certainty of the truth and its blessings. Thus the Spirit testifies to us that the new covenant promises of Jeremiah have been fulfilled in Christ. The new covenant, which was not like the Mosaic covenant that they broke of old, defines our relationship with the Father in the Son. And this new covenant, God writes on the hearts and the minds of his people. Now, as we saw back in chapter 8, this benefit of a heart tattooed with the law includes both of what the New Testament calls regeneration and justification. As the heart is the seat of our identity and the organ of our will, a law-inscribed heart means we are able to obey it. Instead of being dead in sin with a stiff neck and a hard heart, this new lawful heart is us being reborn so that we can please the Lord by faith. Additionally, a lawful heart has righteous merit. It is approbated as righteous before God, which Jesus does to us as he imputes his righteousness to us and presents us as justified before the Father. Thus Christ regenerating us to be new creations and him justifying us by his imputed righteousness through faith, these are the crowning beauties and wonders of the new covenant. Though Hebrews particularly wants to adorn for us a third blessing, namely divine forgetfulness. As he says, I will remember their sins no more. Through Christ, the Father forgets all your lawless deeds, your profane thoughts and feelings, and all your lying words. But what a splendid paradox. The all-knowing, omniscient Father forgets your sin. And such divine forgetfulness was the Old Testament's way of expressing both total forgiveness and freedom from all condemnation and judgment. For the Father to forget your sins in Jesus means you are completely pardoned and there's no judgment for you. It seals you as not a foe. You will not be crushed, but waiting on Jesus, salvation and resurrection alone waits for you. And yet the author teases out another application of this most delicious and tender blessing. Where there is forgiveness of sins, he says, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
God's forgetting and forgiving doesn't just deliver us from judgment, but it also liberates us from the practice of sacrificing. Forgiving and forgetting puts an end to all sacrifice, animal and human. Jesus paid your entire debt of sin, and nothing else needs to be paid. Christ earned heaven for you, and no other merit needs to be supplied. And this is a very, has a very practical outcome, as it means you never have to sacrifice. All payments and purifications for your sins are done. There is nothing left for you to do in terms of atonement and sacrifice. Now, at first, this may seem like a no-brainer and not terribly relevant, for who in the world is tempted to go back to animal sacrifice? And yet this temptation is stronger than we may think. For one, the saints of this letter are literally playing with the very idea to return to the temple and to go back to sacrificing. But then, think of church history. Within Roman Catholic theology and practice, re-sacrificing is actually front and center. In the Roman Catholic Mass, it declares, or in the Mass, it is the unbloody re-sacrificing of Christ for your most recent sin. Yes, every time Mass is held in the Catholic Church, Rome holds that Jesus dies all over again, unbloodily, but still to pay for your sin. But it goes on. In penance, the Catholic priest will pardon you, but by imposing 15 Hail Marys, these are so that you can settle the debt of sin. Indulgences are quite literally payments to erase the debts of sin. And purgatory? This is an entire realm where you go to work off the remaining obligations for sin. Rome may not kill animals, but they impose on the people a host of re-sacrifices to settle the debts of justice so that you can purge away your own sins. And we Protestants are not immune to the influence of Catholicism. Something bad will happen to us, And we can often think, well, this must be a payment for sin. In church, someone will sin and then repent, but we'll demand six months of abased repentance before we will forgive them. Yes, reformed penance is a bad practice and one we should not fall into. And yet all this re-sacrificing traditions of church history are diametrically opposed to the clear truth of Hebrews here. Jesus died once. He perfected you forever. His blood made you holy for good. By his offering, you have total forgiveness and even divine forgetfulness for your sin. With his atoning work, Jesus then sat down as your priest. And having a seated high priest, means there's no more sacrifice. You do not have to pay off any of your sins. There's no small part of your redemption that you have to fill in by works. 
Instead, having been perfected for all time by the single death of Jesus, we just have to wait upon him in faith. This is our Christian life, waiting on Christ to come again for salvation. Now, sure, this waiting is active. We wait by trusting alone in Christ. We wait by walking in faith. We wait by loving God and one another. We further wait by avoiding sin and spurning one another on in good deeds. And we especially wait by worshiping and praising our triune God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Thus, let us wait upon Christ, knowing that he is our seated high priest. And the Sabbath rest that Jesus is enjoying presently, this rest he's keeping for you. Thus, may we then press on to this glorious finish line, assured that Christ has perfected you for all time and is seated at the right hand for your good. Thus, may we be filled with love and gratitude so that for now and forever we might live for the everlasting praise of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, our glorious, seated high priest. Amen. Let us pray.